On February 4, 1963, a new masked wrestler made his first appearance in the Leroy McGurk wrestling territory. Billed as Mr. Zabo, he quickly worked his way up the cards, becoming a main eventer and taking on most of the top babyfaces in the territory. His push culminated with two shots at then-NWA World Heavyweight Champion Lou Thetz. In the second of these bouts, it was reported that Mr. Zabo broke his hand and could not continue in the third fall. Due to this injury, Mr. Zabo then disappeared from the territory less than two months after he had arrived. Who was this masked man? What originally began as a simple test of my research methods and powers of deduction soon became an obsession. My quest to unmask Mr. Zabo took me from Oklahoma to Argentina and all points in between. I called on some of the world's most well-respected wrestling historians for assistance, some of whom had differing opinions. Eventually, I had colleagues speak to the only two wrestlers still alive that were in the territory at the same time as Mr. Zabo. With all this manpower working together, will I be able to get beyond a reasonable doubt proof as the identity of this man? Listen on as I attempt to solve another wrestling history mystery. My name is Al Getz. I run a blog called Charting the Territories and also a monthly podcast. Wrestling history, such as it is, is an interesting animal. The current historical narrative was crafted from a combination of sources over decades of work. A large part of that narrative came directly from the wrestlers themselves. Now, in normal circumstances, getting historical information from those that took part in said history would be a good thing. But let's not forget that professional wrestling is an entity that at its core, teaches and rewards embellishment. Wrestling promoters crafted their own narratives, weaved their own storylines, and as such, were the gatekeepers of historical information. A few examples. Dory Funk Sr. is credited as the inventor of the Texas Deathmatch. However, there are more than a handful of examples of matches with the exact same stipulations as a Texas Deathmatch having taken place prior to Dory's supposed invention of it in 1952. Sticking with the Funks, for years the company line was that Terry Funk's first pro match was on December 9, 1965 in Amarillo against Sputnik Monroe. It wasn't until many years later, when historians uncovered evidence of Terry having at least one match prior to that, that Terry admitted his actual first match was several days earlier in a smaller town. The co-host of my Charting the Territories podcast, John Boucher, once told a story about Tarzan Tyler long after his career was over, still claiming that an injury angle done in Canada with Andre the Giant kept him out of action for over a year, when in reality it was just an angle done to write him out of the territory while he spent some time competing in various territories in the U.S., in this case, it's very possible that Tyler had become so accustomed to towing the company line when talking about the angle that it became fact to him. And let's not forget the numerous mainstream media interviews of Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan in the late 80s, where they would admit to the reporter that wrestling was predetermined art as opposed to legitimate sport. And the interviewer would be so impressed by their honesty 
that they then didn't question the litany of exaggerations and outright lies that followed in the remainder of the interview. As such, I have found that it is often better to use other sources in my quest of wrestling history than by talking to the wrestlers themselves. Only as a last resort will I call on them. My approach to historical research is based in forensics. In essence, it is using the things that we know to try and solve what we don't know. A perfect example of this as it relates to wrestling is the identity of the Infernos. Often managed by J.C. Dykes, the Infernos were a main event level tag team in numerous territories for about a decade. The original version of this mass team consisted of wrestlers Frankie Kane and Rocky Smith. At some point, Frankie left the team, going on to single stardom as the Great Mephisto, and Rocky's brother Curtis took his place in the team. So let's say that I'm researching the career of the Infernos, and I'm not 100% sure exactly when the switch from Frankie to Curtis took place and the Infernos show up in a new territory on a certain date. The way I would attempt to figure out which version of the team it was would be to attempt to find Frankie or Curtis and place them in another territory at the same time as the Infernos were in this territory. If I could confirm, for example, that Frankie is working as the Great Mephisto, say in Florida, at the same time as a version of the Infernos are in Tennessee, then I can be reasonably sure that it was Rocky and Curtis under the hoods at that time in Tennessee. So when I stumbled upon the mass wrestler billed as Mr. Zabo, S-Z-A-B-O, in early 1963, my original plan was to take the same approach. I didn't think I'd be able to unequivocally determine his identity, but I thought that perhaps by using research, logic, and deduction, I could narrow it down to a small number of possibilities, perhaps even with one prime suspect. How did I go about doing this? Step one was to scour newspaper articles and any other information I could get my hands on and look for clues. In essence, I wanted to build a profile of characteristics about this wrestler. From there, I would try and compile a list of as many wrestlers as I could that fit one or more of the criteria. And maybe there would be one wrestler who checked off many of the boxes in the profile I had built, and they would emerge as the most likely candidate. I honestly thought that the end result would be that somebody like Don Fargo or Billy Garrett, veteran wrestlers known for frequent travel and a history of using numerous different ring names and or mass gimmicks, would be the likely suspect, and that would be the end of it. But boy, was I wrong. So what do we know about Mr. Zabo? The first and most important thing to note is that this was a full-time wrestler in the McGurk territory for the entirety of his stay. It was not a part-timer or someone who could have been working in another territory and going back and forth. It was a contiguous character. Thus, the first part of the profile was that whoever this wrestler was, he could not have been wrestling in another territory at the same time, thus excluding every wrestler that was active in another territory between February 6th and March 25th, 1963. It's also worth noting that this was not the famous Hungarian-born wrestler Sandor Szabo. This absolutely positively was a masked wrestler billed as Mr. Szabo. Sandor Szabo was in the waning days of his career in 1963. He had a handful of appearances in California as a special referee and wrestled at least twice in Albuquerque in the first two months of the year. There are a couple of dates where Sandor is booked for an appearance in the western part of the U.S., on the same night as Mr. Zabo is wrestling for Leora McGurk, and at least one instance where I can confirm that Sandor was indeed somewhere else at the same time that Mr. Zabo was wrestling for Leroy. 
Further, on March 25th, the night of Mr. Zabo's second shot at Luthez and last appearance in the territory, Sandor is in Japan wrestling for the JWA. So it literally is impossible for it to have been Sandor Zabo. In promoting this Mr. Zabo's first appearance in the McGurk Territory, an article in the Tulsa World billed him as a highly rated masked wrestler from New York. Several other newspaper clippings in various cities in the territory similarly billed him as being from New York. I found it somewhat interesting that they would bill a masked wrestler as being from a specific town or, or state. Thus, I felt that whoever this wrestler was, he almost certainly had been billed from New York at other times during his career. So I added billed as being from New York to the profile. Further mentions of Zabo mentioned that he had been mowing them down in eastern mat circles. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily have to have been true, but in my experience, when newcomers would start in the territory, if their previous whereabouts were listed, he came here after a successful tour of California or Texas or what have you, it was often accurate, not always, but enough so that I added was in an eastern-based territory shortly before February 1963 to the profile. Going back to the fact that a masked wrestler was given a hometown, or perhaps home state, I had a hunch that this meant the wrestler had wrestled for Leroy McGurk before. The way it reads in these articles, it just feels like the long-term plan, had he not been injured, was to eventually unmask the wrestler and have it be someone that the local fans were already familiar with. So I added, wrestled for Leroy at some point in the several years prior to 1963, to the profile. And since I just mentioned the injury, let's cover that. If we assume the injury was legitimate and not a cover story for the wrestler being fired or quitting, then not only could this person have not been in another, in another territory in February and March, but he probably wouldn't have been wrestling anywhere else for about six to eight weeks after the injury. Now, we don't technically know if the broken hand was indeed a broken hand or fingers or forearm or wrist or whatever, but if we assume the wrestler was injured enough to have to leave the territory, then he wouldn't have shown up the following week somewhere else. So six to eight weeks is as reasonable an estimate of downtime as I could make. Now, before I continue building this profile, three brief asides. First, the more research I did into Mr. Zabo, the more I found wrestlers with similar names popping up in different places at different times. There was a young Zabo wrestling for Nick Goulis earlier in the year. A small promotion in Louisiana used a Mr. Zabo later in 1963. And the following year, Dick Beatty, a former Olympic wrestler who wrestled briefly for Leroy before promoting his own shows in Oklahoma using himself and a fake great bolo, among others. And a few years later... A wrestler billed as Mr. Zabo makes a handful of appearances as a part-timer from McGurk. While it's always possible these were the same person, we really can't prove that it was, and for that matter, we can't prove that it wasn't. For all intents and purposes, my only goal here is to identify the wrestler billed as Mr. Zabo that worked for Leroy McGurk in February and March of 1963. The second side note is that we can't be 100% sure that there was one and only one wrestler under the mask during this two-month run. I can say that having multiple wrestlers alternate working under one mask gimmick is not normally how things worked in this era, certainly not in the case of a pushed entity like Mr. Zabo was. So while anything is possible, it is a very reasonable assumption that the same person was under the mask the whole time with one minor caveat. It's worth noting just for the sake of full disclosure that after wrestling in his scheduled match in Oklahoma City on March 22nd, Mr. Zabo did not appear for his advertised booking in Joplin, Missouri the next night. 
a note in the newspaper after the show mentions that Sabo was removed from the card due to illness. Sabo then wrestled two nights later in Tulsa, the last documented match of his run here. So if we really want to be technical, I guess there's a teeny tiny possibility that they put somebody else under the hood just for the March 25th show in Tulsa. But it's far more likely that the illness was just a minor illness and he just needed a night off and the following day to recover, or that it was a cover story for travel issues. We don't really know. For the third and final aside, there is significant evidence that Sabo's disappearance from the territory was not part of the plan. The week before his final appearance, he defeated main eventer and former world junior heavyweight champion Mike Clancy in both Little Rock and Springfield. They wouldn't have had him beat a top star like Clancy if they weren't planning on keeping him around. And he was advertised for several matches that would take place after the match where he got injured and didn't appear on any of them. So it sure seems that his leaving the territory was an unplanned occurrence, furthering the belief that the injury suffered on March 25th was legitimate. Back to the profile, as I read through more newspaper articles promoting shows in various McGurk cities, additional clues came to light. At one point, it was written that he could really move into the forefront of contenders for Danny Hodge's championship. Hodge, of course, was the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion at the time, and the top babyface star for Leroy McGurk. It's also worth noting here that Zabo never wrestled against Hodge. He wrestled against all the other top babyfaces in the territory, but was never on opposite sides of the ring from Hodge in singles or tag bouts. But given that he's billed as a potential contender for Danny, this means that whoever was under the mask was probably a junior heavyweight, or at the very least, not a particularly big heavyweight wrestler. So I added junior heavyweight to the profile. In looking at the recaps of his matches, he wins a significant number of his bouts in the same manner. He would deliver repeated pile drivers to his opponent, who would eventually be knocked out and or unable to continue. On occasion, the victim would be taken out on a stretcher. So I added, use the pile driver as a finisher at some point to the profile. Considering the significant push that Mr. Zabo got, moving up to main events within a few weeks of starting here, facing virtually all of the top baby faces, beating many of them, and getting two world title shots at Luthez, I felt it's a reasonable assumption that this was somebody of note. He's not a random youngster thrown under a hood. He's somebody with experience and has some name recognition. But by that very same token, the fact that he was wrestling under a mask here and using a gimmick that he doesn't appear to have used elsewhere prior meant that he wasn't a major, well-known superstar. So he's somebody, but not somebody. I added one more item to the profile. Any perfunctory study into professional wrestling history shows that cronyism was prevalent throughout. Promoters had their favorites. Bookers had their favorites. One man's stooge was another man's trusted ally. If you want to know which territory Gary Hart was booking for in the 70s or early 80s, step one always was to find out where the spoiler was wrestling, because where Gary went, Don Jardine usually followed. It's been said that Leroy McGurk did not use a rotating cast of bookers like many other territories did. I don't know this for a fact, but Tim Hornbaker once told me that Leroy didn't use quote-unquote outside bookers in the 60s. However, I do note that Al Lovelock, who was wrestling as the great bolo at this time, is working as the top heel in the territory in early 1963. Lovelock had numerous stints for Leroy dating all the way back to 1946. Most of the time he's here, he's pushed at or near the top of the cart. But there are other times that he isn't pushed as hard. 
So I made an assumption that when he is at the top of the cards, he may at the very least have some sway with Leroy. He may not necessarily be the booker, but he's got some stroke. So I felt it at least possible that whoever was wrestling under the mask as Mr. Zabo was a running buddy of Lovelock's and had some history of being in the same place at the same time as Lovelock. So let's recap the profile I had built for this Mr. Zabo. Point one, Build is being from New York for at least some portion of his career. Point two, was in an Eastern-based territory shortly before February 1963. Point three, had wrestled for McGurk at some point in the several-year period prior to 1963. Point four, can't be confirmed in another territory between February 4th and March 25th, 1963, and for about six to eight weeks after. Point five, is a junior heavyweight or at the very least, not a large heavyweight. Point six, use the pile driver as a finisher. In particular, the sequence of several pile drivers in a row leading to the opponent being unable to continue. Point seven, was somebody with a moderate amount of name recognition, not a nobody, but also not a megastar. Point eight, had some history of being in the same place at the same time as Al, Great Bolo, Lovelock. Now that the profile was built, it was time to compile a list of wrestlers who fit any of the above criteria. As names came up, the overwhelming majority of them could be excluded by confirming their presence in another territory. I looked through the career records of literally hundreds of men active in the early 1960s. I was able to eliminate virtually all of them. A small number of wrestlers may have checked one or two boxes in the profile and could have been considered as possibilities. But one man quickly and clearly emerged as a strong possibility. In fact, he was the only person I could uncover that fit at least half the profile. Actually, he checked every single box on it. Bill from New York? Check. Last known whereabouts prior to February 1963 on the East Coast? A very minor check, as his one and only documented match in the second half of 1962 was in Boston, but a check nonetheless. Had wrestled for McGurk prior to 1963? Check. Could not be placed anywhere else in February, March of 1963, and for six to eight weeks after? Check. Was a junior heavyweight? Check. Had used the pile driver? Check. In fact, just a few years earlier, when wrestling for the Funks, this man on at least one occasion won a match by delivering three consecutive pile drivers, rendering his opponent unable to continue. So yeah, that's a big check. Was somebody, but not somebody, check. Had a history with Al Lovelock, being in the same place as him at the same time. He had been an occasional partner of Lovelock's, and on some occasions an opponent of his, on numerous occasions, not only in this territory, but also in Texas dating back to the late 1940s, check. So we're pretty much eight for eight. As you can imagine, I was pretty stoked to have found one candidate that seemed to fit the profile to a T. And the fact that I had been unable to find anyone else who checked more than two or three boxes in the profile made me think I had solved this wrestling history mystery. This man was someone whose name I had certainly seen before, but truth be told, I wasn't all that familiar with the body of his career work. So I did some digging, and the things I learned made it very clear that if it was him... This may end up being a bigger story than I thought. In particular, the circumstances surrounding Mr. Zabo's last match in the territory, which ended when he suffered a broken hand during a match with the world heavyweight champion, 
could take on a whole new meaning. It was at this point that I realized I couldn't just say, well, here's my research and I think it might have been so-and-so. I needed to be absolutely positively sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was the man my research had pointed to. At this point, it was time to call for backup. I brought in my podcast co-host, John Poucher, as well as Brian Last. They doggedly assisted me in tracking down leads and helping confirm or eliminate other possibilities. Brian even dug up a picture of Mr. Zabo, which, while not too much help since he's wearing a mask, helped eliminate one of the suspects. Brian also connected me to historian Tom Burke, who in turn spoke with McGurk historian Diane Devine. I reached out to Tim Hornbaker, and Tim reached out to the man who literally wrote the book on Lou Thez. Perhaps answers could be found in Thez's recollections of his opponents from the time period. I also spoke with David Baker, who bills himself as a mid-Atlantic historian, but knows much more about other territories than he lets on. The one and only Scott Teal was brought into the fray as well. Through some of these connections, the subject of Mr. Zabo was brought up to the only two wrestlers still alive that worked with him in early 1963. Yes, listeners, first we called the cowboy, and then after that we found out what Frankie says— Were they able to remember the identity of a man they shared a locker room with almost 60 years ago? Between all these various sources and new information, will I be able to unmask Mr. Zabo and solve a wrestling history mystery? In future episodes of this podcast, released on the second Thursday of each month through the end of the year, we will look at three suspects, each culled from a different method. I will discuss the pros and cons of each suspect and perhaps... When all is said and done, I will be able to definitively take the mask off and reveal to the world the true identity of Mr. Zabo. Wrestling History Mysteries, part of the Charting the Territories podcast feed, can be found wherever you get your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Wrestling History Mysteries is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. <laughs>